0: Thanks a lot. Appreciate that. Uh, well, I want to say ditto and I want to echo those sentiments about Kurt, man. I have grown more under Kurt's leadership and his guidance. And uh, yeah, we have butted heads a lot. When you're in a relationship with me, that's just what you do. Uh, Man, I cannot tell you how much I have learned from that guy. So I love this guy. He is my best friend, and uh, other than Brian, who is my other best friend. And um, love those guys. I will miss them tremendously. Uh, man, I'm bummed. Man, I, I left a year too early. I want to go to that Israel trip with you guys. Maybe I can hook up and meet you there or something. But uh, we're going to jump into the text today. If you have your Bible, you can open to John chapter 4 and so here's what I wanted to do today with my last sermon is kind of preach the first sermon I preached here That's what I wanted to do and I want to talk a little bit about uh, why, why I love this church and why you should too and what I think this church is all about and what I know this church will continue to be about and this is frankly what I hope your life is about I hope this is what you are all about this passage John chapter 4 and the story of uh, Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well has really become, for me, a defining mode of ministry. Because Jesus does a couple of things in this passage that, that should define us as Christians. John starts his gospel out. By the way, his gospel is what's called an ancient biography. The gospel of Luke is a monograph, which means it's sequential. The gospel of John is not sequential. It's a biography. So if you read uh, Kurt's book, uh, Epic Grace, Chronicles of a Recovering Idiot, uh, that's a biography. But it's not sequential. Luke's is, John's is not. What John does in an ancient biography, what ancient biographers did is uh, they would sum up their entire book in one chapter at the beginning. So they would write the book, guys like Cicero they would write their biography and then they would go back and write an introduction chapter in the same way that many uh, modern authors do today and so John's introduction to Jesus is this that Jesus was a man full of grace and truth verse 17 chapter 1 verse 17 he says the law came through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ and he has already written the stories that show that that is true and this is the one he has in mind for sure, I I believe. And it's right here in John chapter 4. So here's the big idea today and that's that true disciples of Jesus will be known by their ability to show people God's amazing, amazing grace and to tell people God's uncompromising truth. You do those two things and you will look like Jesus. Uh, This is no more clearly uh, shown in chapter 4. So let's read it. Here's what it says. It says in verse 1, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he's sensing some trouble here. It says, although Jesus himself didn't baptize anyone, but only his disciples did. So he left Judea. Now that's the southern region. And he departed again for Galilee. That's the northern region, north of Samaria, where he lives. And it says in verse 4, it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. Underline that. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. John's story assumes that the reader already knows that there was great antipathy Between the Jews and the Samaritans, that's an understatement. Their long-standing feud was due to several factors. The first one was this. About 10 centuries before Jesus, the kingdom was unified under David and Solomon. So the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, parts of the kingdom, Judea and Israel, were unified. It was one kingdom. After Solomon, the kingdom broke apart between two of Solomon's sons or between two kings. And Samaria became the capital of the north. And Jerusalem became the capital of the south. So immediately this rivalry between the two kingdoms, like the north and the south in America, Washington, D.C. and New York, you know, this this, this intense rivalry between these two uh, parts of the kingdom. The rivalry uh, between Jerusalem and Samaria was both political and religious. When the Jews returned from Babylonian captivity years later, They tried to rebuild the city walls in Jerusalem. And so as they were coming down from Assyria, guess who opposed them? Samaritans fought them hard, tried to kill them, tried to stop their efforts to rebuild their holy city because they did not believe that Jerusalem was the holy city. They believed it was Gerizim in Samaria. The rivalry was also racial. The Samaritans were half-breeds. The Assyrians, what they did is when they took over this region, uh, they, they took it over and they uh, sort of colonized it with a bunch of Assyrians, pagans. And those pagans interbred with the Jews, and so most of the Samaritans were half-breeds, and the Jews in the south did not like this. Because a true Jew is from Abraham's line. They didn't dig this. So there was great, great Resistance to the Samaritans for that reason. Samaritan religion was considered by the Jews to be a cult. Like the Jehovah's Witness religion in America. They held a limited view of scripture. They only accepted the books of Moses. So they accepted Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their Bible. The Revelation, the book of Revelation and their Bible was the book of Deuteronomy. Those five books called the Pentateuch. They practiced also pagan mysticism. And they were far more strict about the application of the Mosaic law than the Pharisees. Think about that. This is how religious these people were. And so they were considered by the southern Jews, by Jesus' kinsmen in the south around Jerusalem, they were considered by the Judeans to be cultists. As a result, the Jewish people had absolutely no dealings at all, either in commerce or religiously or socially with the Samaritans and they avoided traveling through that territory altogether when a Jew was traveling from the south up to Galilee they wouldn't go through Samaria they would take a detour into the east through Perea and the Decapolis. That's why I want to go on that trip because I want to see all that I study about that stuff all the time. And now Jesus is on his way back from Jerusalem the capital of Judea and in the text it says that he had to go through Samaria. So let's make a few observations about this story because it's vintage Jesus. Here's number one, if you're taking notes. Jesus went where no Jew had gone before. These Jews didn't like going into Samaria. And Jesus, the text says, verse 4, 3 and 4, it says, he He left Judea and departed from Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. The Greek text says he had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He didn't have to go through Samaria, not logistically. He could have gone around. He could have gone the well-traveled route around, but he doesn't go around. He goes through. The Holy Spirit of God had led him to Samaria. Why? Now, later we'll find out why, because in the book of Acts, the disciples go there. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. You will testify of me. in the power of the Holy Spirit where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, In Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Jesus' program always was to include Samaria in the gospel of salvation. And so he goes there first. Jesus went where no Jew had gone before. And Jesus was willing to put himself right in the middle of hostile territory. These Samaritans, they hated the Jews as much as the Jews hated them. He put himself right smack dab in the midst of people who hated him. But he doesn't hate. He loves. He doesn't do what his kinsmen expect of him. He shows them grace and mercy. And exhausted from the hike and burning up, thirsty from trekking hours under the blazing mid-eastern sun, Jesus went where the other super religious would not go. And number two, Jesus ignored social and religious barriers. So Jesus went there. He went where no one would go. He went where these other pious Jews would not go to evangelize. And number two, Jesus ignored silly social and religious barriers. So the master walks up to this well-known watering hole. It's called Jacob's Well. He knows where it is. He sits down and he finds this woman of Samaria there by herself in midday drawing water. Look at verses uh, 7 through 9. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. I like his directness. Jesus is my kind of guy. Hey, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So he has to tell his disciples this whole story when they get back and what went down. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew ask for a drink from me, I'm a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans." So all that history I just gave you is compressed, is packed into those two statements right there in her question. And notice the nature of her protest. Jesus, a Jewish man, is asking a Samaritan woman for a drink. The protest works on three levels, racial, gender, and religious. In ancient literature, the Jewish rabbis would say, The Jewish teachers would say, you can't just not have anything to do with the Samaritans. It was also socially unacceptable to receive anything from them. So if a Samaritan wanted to give you something or give you a gift, it was automatically defiled because they were Samaritans. So you don't receive anything from a Samaritan. And what does Jesus do? He says, give me something. Give me a drink. Here's Jesus asking this woman for help. He is asking a Samaritan woman, a Jewish man, asking a Samaritan woman for assistance. It was also uncool for a rabbi to handle the cup or eating utensils of a defiled person. Now this was also true of a Jew and and a defiled Jew. Jesus was also not supposed to touch a fellow, his kinsman, a fellow Jew, if that uh, that person was defiled. But this is a Samaritan who is defiled. And, and she knows the moment he touches that cup or that ladle that she has touches his lips and he drinks the water that she is touching, he is religiously contaminated. He is impure. And Jesus doesn't give a rat's rear end about that. He doesn't care about stupid social and religious barriers. He doesn't care about these man-made traditions that, that are barriers between him and the people that he's trying to reach. He is there to give her a gift of grace that she cannot imagine. And he cares about the people that he is going to swing, he is going to hang on a cross for later. Jesus wants to show the Samaritans His amazing grace, His epic grace, to take the initiative to reach out to them when they haven't asked Him to be there. And their past doesn't matter. Their history of hostility toward His kinsmen, that doesn't matter either. And Jesus has off-ramped into this forbidden place to talk to this forbidden woman when no one else would do it. Because He loves lost people. And because He came to give us grace. And grace goes where no Jew would go. That's what it does. It loves the unlovable. And he doesn't blink, and he doesn't flinch, and he doesn't care what religious people think about him for doing it. And I cannot tell you how many times over the years we have had some fool walk in here and protest us because we had Paul Young come here to offer people healing and grace. How annoying is that? Now, I love those religious people who have done that. I love the religious people who send us the hate mail, who send Kurt, who deluge Kurt's inbox with messages about how we're sinful because we offer sinners grace. And here's what I hope about you, East Point Church. I hope you continue to be that church. I do. I hope you keep to be I hope you continue to be that church where all those sinners are and those religious people looking down their religious noses wonder why why do you people let so many so many smokers in the building man why, why why you know we have had people complain that we have had those those little ashtrays outside remember that people when we first put those out there why why would you put ashtrays outside of a a church this is not the church this is a Kmart <laughs> right It, it is only hallowed because we are here and we are the people of God. And the people of God love the people Jesus died for. And they reach out and they go. They reach out and they go. So she is stunned by this request, request for water. She is astonished by what follows. Number three, she's really going to be shocked by this one. Jesus engaged in spiritual conversation. Now notice how Jesus very deftly, he turns the whole thing to spiritual matters. It says, Jesus answered her, if if you only knew the gift of God and who it was who was saying to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now he's got her attention. The woman said to him, sir, um, you have nothing to draw water with. uh, And the well is very deep. Are you going to climb down there and get some water or what? So where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and did uh, his sons and, and livestock? And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And that woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty again and have to come back to this well every day. And I love how Jesus cuts straight to the heart of the matter. I love how Jesus pushes her button because he knows exactly what her real need is. Her real need is this living water God's salvation, God's Holy Spirit. If you only knew, he says, who it was who was sitting in front of you, then you would have asked me for the water that will never go away. The water that slakes your endless thirst for righteousness. And by using this living water analogy, Jesus really hooks her. She is no longer engaged in chit chat with the local rabbi. She now wants to know where Are you going to get this endless supply of water? This living water? So the conversation graduates from casual talk, casual conversation. Now Jesus has turned it into a spiritual conversation. And I sense a little bit of sarcasm in her response, don't you? Uh, Well, you don't have a bucket, Mr. Living Water, where's your bucket, right? But she is intrigued, and she's really going to be intrigued now. Number four, Jesus confronts her sin. Oh, this is kind of, uh, by the way. After capturing her attention, piquing her curiosity, Jesus then challenges her sinful lifestyle with a provocative request. It says, Jesus said to her, 'Uh, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, 'I, I I I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, yeah, you're right about that. You're right in saying that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Is there anything else about your life you would like for me to tell you? Because I can do that too. And so immediately she's like, whoa. So the implication is clear. This woman is shacking up. This woman is a serial relationship person. You know who I'm talking about. Some of you in here are too, yeah. But you know what? You're welcome. And Jesus turns this conversation to spiritual matters and he gets her to confess her sin. And he does it prophetically. And Jesus always does this. Before he deals with anything else in your life, before he wants to teach you doctrine, Jesus wants to deal with the barrier between you and God, your relationship and God. That's what he wants to do. And later, John will tell us, Jesus will say, In this very book, he will say, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and here's why I'm going to send him. Because he is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and sure judgment. So the first thing God wants to do in our lives is to convict us of sin. And that's where Jesus, and she's very convicted of sin. How do you know that? It's not explicitly stated in the text. It's not explicitly stated in the text, but she surely is. You know how we know that? Because she changes the subject. You ever change the subject? I did, My kids do this, you know, I'm like, hey, why did you do that to your little brother? You know, Dad, I got an A on my report card last... You know, it's like we, we change the subject because we don't want to deal with that, that thing that has just surfaced. And this is what she does. Number five, Jesus corrected her theology. So immediately she changes the subject to bigger, more impressing theological issues. Which shrine, which holy place is the right place for the people of God to worship? Verse 19, it says, The woman said to him, Yes, sir, I, I perceive you are a prophet. Oh, yeah. Thank you, genius. Thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, this is that, that consternation, that angst between the Jews and the Samaritans because the Samaritans say, This is the holy site you guys don't have it. And Jesus' response is essentially this, okay fine, you want to have a theological discussion? Let's do that. And then he proceeds to tell her she is wrong about everything she knows. What a graceful evangelist. (laughs) He tells her, you don't know what you're talking about. Salvation comes from the Jews. It doesn't come from Samaria. It comes from the Jews. But a time is coming, Jesus says, when the true worshipers will not wor- worry about where they worship or what place or what holy shrine they worship in. The true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, he says. And truth by its very nature, truth by its very nature must be intolerant of error. Well, it can't be true if it's not intolerant of error. Because if all propositions are true, then none are. So... It's the truth that sets men free, and at some point, the spiritual conversation that we start with unbelievers has to turn to the truth. Listen, you can do it in a friendly way. You should. You should do it in a loving, relational way, the way Jesus does here. But at some point, there has to be a confrontation of a false belief system because we all hold them. Remember before you came to Christ, those of you who are believers, remember all the false beliefs you held? Well, I remember some that I held. I thought that God was waiting to, to kill me, <laughs> you know, to uh, unleash his wrath on me and God wanted to unleash his love and grace on me. So I had all kinds of false beliefs before I came to Christ. And at some point you're going to have to say, listen, friend, you are a sinner. You are far from God and you are headed for a crisis eternity and that's why Jesus died on the cross, for your sins. And Jesus is quite willing to tell her her theology is wrong. But he doesn't just debate the woman. Have you ever been in a fruitless debate? Like on Facebook? Like I get into, once in a while, somebody drags me into one of those debates. I usually will make a statement and then some some dude will, will respond to me. And then two hours later, I'm thinking, why did I just, I just lost two hours of my life. You know, I could have been watching like Downton Abbey or something and that would have been a better use of my time. But Jesus doesn't just want to debate the woman. He wants to reach her, and to do that, he has to confront her in a relational context. The issue here is trust. Jesus has established immediate trust with her, immediate authority with her because of his prophecy. Now, if you don't have that, you have to do it another way. You have to do it through relationships. You have to start a neighboring group. You have to have people over your home. They have to know that you love them before you start laying the Bible on them. That's how it has to happen. So she responds by saying that, well, well, we'll just wait for the Messiah to show up. We will just wait for the one who was promised to show up. Who is she talking about? Remember, the Samaritans do not believe in the prophetic text. They don't believe in Isaiah. They don't believe in uh, uh, Malachi, Malachi, or Malachi, however you want to pronounce that. They don't believe that. They only accept Moses, so what is she referring to? She is referring to Deuteronomy 18, 18, where Moses said, someday there's gonna come a prophet just like me, and he's gonna tell you the words of God, and you better listen to him, and if you don't listen to him, God's judgment will be upon you. And she says, someday the prophet, the king, the Messiah, he's going to come, and he will explain all things to us, and Jesus says, the one who is sitting before you is he. I am he. Wow. Number six, Jesus then reaps the harvest. So the entire project in Samaria is so that Jesus could win hearts and train his disciples how to do it later. The disciples return. Notice they protest. In the text, it says, Why are you, what, what? Why are you talking to her? <laughs> Here, we got you some food. Just eat, and then you'll start thinking, right? The fog will clear. And he goes, No, 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 I'm fine. I'm already full. I'm full because God has been doing his work right here. These people are receiving the good news. And here is why I wanna land, because as Kurt said last week, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have a couple of doctorates or a couple of master's degrees in theology to reach people for Jesus. Now those things do help if you wanna equip others. That's great. And you should grow in your knowledge and depth of insight. The word commands us that in Philippians 1.9. You should seek to be prepared to give a rational defense of your belief system. Peter commanded us to do that. And there are really good answers that we have for the objections that people hit us with. But here's the bottom line. Most of all, you just need to be willing to tell your story. Tell it to someone who desperately needs the truth of God. Tell them about how you experience forgiveness. Tell them the life-changing message of the Savior and what he's done for you. And so the text puts these issues, I think, directly to us. And here's here's where we land. When is the last time religious people ever accused us of getting too comfortable around sinners? This is exactly why the religious couldn't stand Jesus. Because he did stuff like this. Because he, he got close in their space. He didn't phone it in, and he didn't send someone else to do it. Jesus evangelized personally those who were far from God, and he wasn't worried about being contaminated by what they had. He was more interested in giving them what he had. What man-made religious stuff are we willing to ignore in order to reach lost people with the grace of God? When is the last time we actively, intentionally turned a, a conversation about sports, about this would not apply to those of you who are not here and are at home watching football. Okay, this only applies to the rest of us, but when is the last time we, we went to a sporting game or a football game or something and watched our kids and intentionally at least one tick, one mark, one degree, tried to turn the conversation toward a God conversation? When is the last time we confronted a friend for their sin and said, man, can I pray with you about that? Because you're sinning against God. Would you like to receive Jesus? And of course they will say yes. Like Jesus, how are we helping people to come to the realization that they're far from God and they need salvation? Are we willing to face the same rejection that Jesus and the New Testament disciples faced for the truth, for standing for the truth? If you do it in love and you do it in grace, you should not be afraid. Of being rejected by the culture Jesus promised that you and I would be. How have we challenged someone's false beliefs? For me, this is like the second skin. It's second nature. Uh, Somebody lays something on me and I'm just like, well, no, that's wrong. You know, but I I realize that a lot of you are very uncomfortable with that. And you don't have to do it the way that I do it. But at some point, you and I are going to have to confront people's false beliefs. And here's the big one. When is the last time we led personally someone to faith in Jesus? It's very easy. Here's what I've learned. It's very easy to let the pastors worry about that. You know, it's like, man, I'm going to bring my friend to Jesus, and then Kirk can lead him to Jesus, (laughs) you know. But what God calls us to do is to lead people to faith in Christ in our homes, in our cubicles, in our jobs, wherever we are, whatever our Samaria is, wherever he has sent us. God wants, to, wants us to personally lead people to faith in Christ. We are to bring the saving life of heaven to every corner of the earth starting with our patch of it. That's what God has called us to do and that's our prayer for you today. My prayer is that you would look just like Jesus in this story and how does the story end? How does the story end? The woman goes back to her town and sicker. She goes back to her town and she tells everyone the good news of what Jesus has done for her. And this is just exactly the way it's supposed to work. People who are on fire, people who have been transformed, people who have received God's saving truth, what do they do? They want to tell other people about it. And then what do the people say later? We no longer believe because of your testimony. When Jesus gets to the town and he fellowships with these people, they say we believe because we have seen it for ourselves. We have heard the truth for ourselves. And that is what we're to be all about, is making disciples with grace and truth who will make more disciples. That's the job of the church. And that's my prayer for you, that you will keep doing that. Amen? All right, let's pray. We're done. Let's pray. We're going to close it the old-fashioned way. I want to pray for you before Kurt comes back up. God, I am so thankful for this great church, this great, great commission church. And I pray that every person in this room that is a part of this fellowship, that is a part of this church, will be on fire. God, that they will catch the vision and the passion of being vessels of grace, being vessels of truth in their neighborhoods, in their communities, at their jobs, in their families, wherever it is. And I pray, dear God, that this church will be known as that church where all the sinners are welcome. And they hear the truth, the life-saving truth that Jesus saves. And I pray that in the name of Jesus for these folks. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Thanks, guys, for your time. And I'm short.
1: I'm going to ask... uh, Brian and Matt to come on up and Jeff you guys come on up right now I want to pray for you it is an honor for me to um, have served with this guy. Carrie come on up here I, uh, I know the blessing you're going to be um, God's taken a long time to bring you to this place again and, and I believe in you Jeff I believe in you man moving is a big transition I've got four amazing kids and um Change is is challenging. And I want to encourage you to continue to pray for these guys. Uh, The church they're going to is a great church. And uh, they're getting a great gift in you too, in both of you. And we just want to pray for you. We want to send you, uh, I think I can get through this without completely melting down. (laughs) We want to send you with joy. Jesus, thank you. Thanks for the gift these two have been to us. Thanks for the gift they've been to me. And thanks for the gift I know they're going to be to that church in Idaho Falls. God, I love watching you work in hearts and lives. I love watching you heal. You've healed them here. I love watching you, Lord, prepare. I love watching you. Weave your destiny into people's lives and in the way you work. I love it. I love it. And I know, God, that you have great things for them. The impact that they're going to have in that church and that city will be beyond anything that they've personally experienced and more than this church has even experienced in their history. So, Lord, I ask you for a few things. First, I ask you to protect them as they travel, as they move, all the things that have to happen, as they pull up roots here and begin to put roots down that you protect them protect them physically, emotionally, spiritually. Lord I know the enemy hates this, hates what you're gonna do through this family so God protect them I pray your hand on them. God I pray that you would continue to do um, what you've done for so many years and Jeff that you would uh, enlarge his capacity of his heart to to really now be the senior pastor to care for staff, to care for church leaders in a, in a different way, that you would give him the anointing of God that, that he's had, that, that you would increase that a hundredfold, Lord. A hundredfold that you give him even more than he's ever had before. And then, Lord, I ask you for your favor on their lives. I pray, God, that even as our hands are on them now, that the favor of God would rest on them, that people would uh, embrace them and see in them and in their marriage and in their children and in their love for you and their passion for the word and in their passion for the church, they would see something that they would just be drawn to you because of it. That the favor of God, Lord, would be on this family and on this couple and on Jeff in a way that would be unmistakably you. Unmistakably you. And that when people look at them, Lord, and look at what you're doing, that they would just go, wow. God is good. God is amazing. And Lord, continue to speak through him the message of grace and truth that you've brought to us today again. Let that truth ring true in Idaho Falls and Christ Community Church. And so we send them, Lord. We send them with joy. We send them with grateful hearts. We send them with our love now. We do it in Jesus' name. Well, uh, they'll be down front, if you want to come and say goodbye, uh, that would be really cool. prayer team will be around here somewhere. Uh, there's communion available on both sides of the room. We have something new in the very back on the information table. There's actually gluten-free communion. Go figure, they make that now. So if you have allergies, you have been able to take it, that's back there as well. I encourage you to uh, grab a New Believers Packet if you've become a Christ follower recently. Uh, Stop by to talk to Sarah about neighboring groups. And uh, come back next week. We're going to open a new series. I'm excited to bring you the word. So God bless you guys. Have a great week walking with Jesus. Thanks for being here.